0: Hello, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I'm Rick Herman, I'm the Director of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies here on campus and we're sponsoring this event today. The mission of the center is to advance the understanding of national security in a global context. And there are very few of us who actually achieve that aim, but uh, Professor Paul Kennedy, who's with us this afternoon, certainly has. Uh, As many of you know, uh, Professor Kennedy is the J. Richardson Dilworth Professor of History and director of the International Security Studies Program at Yale University. He's known for his many writings and commentaries on global, political, and economic affairs. He's the author of more than 19 books, some of them like Strategy and Diplomacy, The Rise of Anglo-German Antagonism, The War Plans of the Great Powers, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, and Preparing for the 21st Century. have been mandatory reading in many of our classes, and for a long time. Perhaps his best known work, the one I've assigned very often, is The Rise and Fall of the Great Power. It provides an immense, it provoked an immense debate uh, in the 1980s. It appeared in 1988 and is still uh, read often. It's now translated into more than 20 languages and is on required syllabi in most political science as well as history courses. From 1993 to 96, Professor Kennedy was secretary to the International Commission of a long-term future of the United Nations. And he distilled what he learned from that experience in his recent book, The Parliament of Man, the past, present, and future of the United Nations, published by Random House last year. Today, Professor Kennedy will talk about what he learned in that project. And you can tell from today's headlines there's a few topics that are more important for us to understand. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Professor Paul Kennedy.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming out on this blustery day. Um, Thanks to the Mershon Center and Rick Herman for inviting me. Uh, It is nice to be back here, and uh, nice to see the hubbub of activities that goes around international security studies and the Mershon Center and the key departments at OSU. I'm going to talk, as you heard from Professor Herman, about the uh, experiences I had and the lessons learned, which is a kind of Vietnam War-type phrase, um, uh, concerning a project which I was involved with in regard to uh, the United Nations. Um, So I'm going to begin by outlining what the project was, then what I learned, and then what the sort of problems are. I also have some PowerPoint slides here uh, to help jog your memory as to the various things that the United Nations as an organization and as a large family uh, tends to do. I have put uh, Mission Impossible as the somewhat tongue-in-cheek title. I should tell you in advance that I don't think the mission is impossible, but I think it takes a lot of intelligent and sustained work to carry out what the founding fathers thought they were doing when they created the United Nations at San Francisco in June 1945. Uh, the story, as far as I'm concerned, begins with a, a phone call I received in my uh, kitchen on the morning of Friday, August the 21st, uh, 1993. Uh, why is that engraven in my memory? Because it, it twisted my life out of a rut for... Uh, the following years i had written in uh, 1988 the rise and fall of the great powers which was a very standard big power 500 year long history about economics and strategy i had been challenged by some economists at brookings institution in washington to move away from big powers and to write about broad transnational global trends which were affecting all nations large and small regardless of their boundaries, regardless of their power, and I'd taken four years off to write a book called Preparing for the 21st Century, which came out in 1993. I was then returning, I thought, to writing another couple of books of my area of expertise, namely international diplomacy and strategy, uh, when a phone call rang in my kitchen. and It was from the office of the Secretary General, and the uh, International Affairs Department of the Ford Foundation in New York. And they said they would like me to, uh, well, just toss everything aside and become and form the secretariat for an international commission which would do a report on the long-term future of the United Nations uh, in time for... The 50th anniversary of the UN, which obviously was going to take place uh, on on June 1995, so I had less than two years to get together this report on the long-term future of the UN. I protested that I really wasn't an expert on international organization, and they said, don't worry, we'll get you former ambassadors, former... Uh, advisors, we'll build up a research team, but we like what you've been doing in writing about preparing for the 21st century on global issues and challenges which come across borders which no borders can respect or control, and about the nation-state's preparedness or really lack of preparedness to deal with the 21st century. That's what the book was about. Their argument was that if any institution was ill-prepared to deal with the 21st century, it was the United Nations organization. It badly needed a fresh look. It badly needed an assessment of what it had done and what it had not done, what it was good at, what it was not good at over its first half century, and then look into the future. So I swallowed hard. It seemed rather difficult to tell the Secretary General to you know, beat it. And I accepted this together with my colleague in political science, Bruce Russett, who was head of UN studies at Yale. This was a big mistake. Never ever pick up a phone in your kitchen on a Friday in August. Lesson number one. Um, Well, we together with the Ford Foundation uh created a 12 person distinguished international commission all great and the good former presidents prime ministers foreign secretaries businessmen ngo leaders and we labored and produced uh, a report we were instructed by the commission that they didn't want a big fat report because no political figures and no foreign secretaries would read it so we had to come in with a very broad brush report on the past present and future of the un at 40 printed pages, not more. Uh, The report was published by the Ford Foundation in 1995. We proudly went into the Secretary General Boutras Boutras Ghali's office to give it to him. We had done our work, and we'd done our best. The report was called um, The United Nations in its Second Half Century. So it had had a half-century 1945 to 95, how would it go, how should it go in the second half century? Uh, well, we thought we'd done a good job. Uh, we'd worked day and night. I'd got a lot of gray hairs and some others disappeared. Uh, when we handed it to Poutras he looked as if we had given him a dead skunk. <laughs> um, He clearly was unhappy at this. What had happened in the meantime, his office and the Ford Foundation had commissioned us to do it. We'd done our best. We'd tried to take into account a lot of Secretary General's documents and statements as well as other thoughts. And now he was looking at it as if it was roadkill. Well, a number of things had happened. Uh... Perhaps the most important was that in the interval between my accepting this job and the uh, production of the report, which he was to, supposedly to take to San Francisco and show it to the delegates, assuming going there for the 50th anniversary, in between that period, uh, or in that period, there had been the triple uh, disasters of uh, Mogadishu. Uh, in the Balkans, uh, Kosovo, and Srebrenica, and the biggest genocidal disaster of all, uh, Rwanda and Burundi in the Central Lakes District, uh, giving the impression that uh, the United Nations clearly had lost its ground, couldn't do anything in particular. It, uh, I should try to explain why it wasn't the United Nations which failed, but simply the large powers which failed to agree but nonetheless, there was a big cloud cast over the effectiveness of the UN because of these disasters. Secondly, in 1994, in November, there were the midterm congressional uh, elections, uh, elections which led to both the House and the Senate going firmly into uh, Republican and very strongly anti-Clinton directions and rather hostile temper, especially of the newer members of the Congress, to anything international. Uh, Sixty-four of the new members of the Congress, who, of course, entered the Congress in the following a month and a half later, sixty-four of them, ladies and gentlemen, um, did not have a Passport. They weren't intending to get a passport. Many of them had run on the proud claim that they weren't needing a passport because they were not going to go abroad. Uh, Some of them were immediately put, of course, on the House Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee, but it didn't matter because you don't need to travel to understand the world. Uh, The hostility of the Congress spilled over in uh, denial of uh, regular budget funds to the annual UN budget, which every country is obliged by international law to pay. Our Senate just refused to. And it was also hurt by a quarrel which broke out between Mr. Boutras, Boudras ghali and Madeleine Albright at the State Department, and he was rather desperate to get his term of office renewed and did not recognize that there wasn't a snowflakes chance in hell of that. And so when he learned that this report was full of rather strong recommendations like changing the membership of the Security Council, altering the use of the veto, getting rid of the Economic and Social Council, uh, he thought this would kill his chances which is why, as I said, he regarded our report like a uh, a dead skunk. Well, we tried our best for a year going to countries like India, Mexico, parts of Europe to try to sell the report, but uh, with the representatives of the most powerful nation and legislature on the earth not interested, and with Butras Gali, the patron and provenance of the report, uh, dead in the water, We couldn't do much about it. I believe that if you rummaged around the archives of the Ford Foundation in New York, you might find the last 3,500 copies of this brilliant document. (laughs) You're welcome to them free if you want. It was a lesson for me about uh, how differently the real world works compared with the academic world. What, though, did I learn in a broader reflective sense? Well, I learned that the. I had to go and talk to NGOs, to representatives of the churches, to congressmen on the hill, to experts in United Nations studies, to foreign diplomats, many of whom had wonderful (coughs) insights and experience. And so I learned, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, there were very few neutral opinions about the United Nations. Um, either you believed that the sort of forces for change and the pressures against our global society and humankind were now so big and transnational. And so in need of urgency, whether it was the collapse of weak states or global warming or the overfishing of the commons or dealing with a global volatile financial system, you either believed that those transnational forces were so great that no single power, however big, could deal with them and therefore you had to move back to the idea of the founding fathers and go for cooperative solutions. So even if, like myself, you thought there were a lot of defects in the world organization, that didn't mean you were going to toss it out. What you were looking for was intelligent ways to improve it. But you were ipso facto an internationalist. You were pro-international organization of some form, and many could differ on the form, but that was where you went. Or you were in a camp which was suspicion, suspicious of governance and government, you don't like big government in your own state. You don't like big government in Washington. So why the heck should you be in favor of big government on the 38th floor of the United Nations building? You were suspicious. It got, a, it got in the way of your sovereignty. It was full of left-wing liberal pinkos or corrupt African foreign ministers <coughs> dining on the lakes of Geneva. And uh, it, it should be, if not abolished, it should be definitely shaken up and reduced and cut down, especially in its ambitions to do anything that would infringe the sovereignty of nation states. So it was very hard to find, there were some people, very but very hard to find some people who, when you said, I'm working on UN reform, didn't react either enthusiastically on the one hand or very negatively on the other hand. And just last uh, spring, as um, I and my publishers were preparing uh, for the publication of the, the book, The Parliament of Man, this is the, uh, the edition you see in this country by Random House of New York. Um, this idea that there were two different views of the UN came up and hit me in the face in looking at the very different jacket illustrations which had been decided upon by my publisher, Random House in New York, but my equally uh, powerful publisher, Penguin UK in London. The text of the two is exactly the same, but the dust jacket, if you were ever flying through Heathrow this summer, is differently. You will see that this text has just, it looks like a small figurine, but actually it is the very large bronze statue of the god Thor beating swords into ploughshares. So it is very reflective of the wonderful words of the preamble of the United Nations Charter about ridding future generations of humankind from the scourge of war. Now uh, my tough-nosed editors in uh, London were having none of this idealistic claptrap, as they said. Uh, They wanted something which was going to be much more dramatic. And a young picture researcher at Penguin UK found this in the uh, March of last year, just before it went out to print. (laughs) This... doesn't suggest much in the way of turning swords into plowshares, does it? It's a remarkable photo. Even my colleague in Cold War history, John Gaddis, had never seen it before. It's shot in the middle of an angry debate on the Security Council in the middle of the Korean War. The uh, charming gentleman with the white hair on the right-hand side uh, making his point is the notorious Soviet permanent representative Visinnsky, the guy on the left hand side, looking as if he is going to find it difficult to stand this unless he gets his first dry martini of the afternoon <laughs> is the American uh, permanent representative, Henry Cabot Lodge the second, and the guy in the middle is my favorite. He is uh, one of the most accomplished British diplomats of the 20th century, Gladwin Jebb, later Lord Gladwin. Gladwin had been in charge of the League of Nations section of the British Foreign Office in the 30s and had seen how the League was disastrously torn apart. He had been one of the chief planners for the new international organization during the war. It was Gladwin who drafted an awful lot of this, the little blue book here, which is the United Nations Charter, um, and then submitted it to his American colleagues and it went backwards and forwards. Uh, So a lot of this has the imprint of of Gladwin. Gladwin attended San Francisco, of course, he was part of the British delegation, and uh, he marveled, uh, he, he was wondering at the, the speeches of all the politicians, all of all the 49 countries which assembled in San Francisco in June 45. were really quite uplifting, quite idealistic. Uh, Truman's speech at San Francisco is truly astonishing, really very moving. Gladwin flying back to London the day after from San Francisco and an avid personal diarist wrote, well, we did our best and the politician's speeches were most loquacious but I fear we have aimed too high for this wicked, wicked world of ours. So the man who drafts a lot of the charter feels that there is a gap between human intentions and ideals and the hard, rough-and-tumble politics of the world. And whenever, when I saw that uh, photo sent by Penguin, I just couldn't help thinking that Gladwin was saying, oh, my God, I told him so at the time. I told them that it probably was going to be much harder than they thought But there's my first point. You're usually not neutral. You either have the idealist view and it has to work or you have the cynical and negative view. What is the uh, second major lesson I learned? Um, This was one which took me a lot of time to figure out. I thought I was getting dumber than ever and my brain had gone to seed. It was that uh, when I was talking to all of these different people, all these different pressure groups, interest groups, political figures, academics, when I would use the term UN reform, it took me ages to discover that meant different things, very different things to different people. And I would have to, you know, change, change um, radio length or something like that to understand that it was... This person was using that meaning of U.S. reform, not that meaning. Crudely speaking, I would say there were three ways people use U.N. reform. The first is what we jokingly call the uh, Jesse Helms variant of U.N. reform. That is to say the arch-conservative senator from North Carolina, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the mid-1990s, who wanted the U.N. to be shaken up, he wanted all of us bureaucrats tossed out of the window if they didn't toss themselves out voluntarily. He wanted a reduction in the budget. He didn't want any any boy talking about a U.N. army or U.N. data gathering. Uh, he wanted uh, to get rid of the overlap in various agencies. So what he wanted was a shake-up, a cleaning out of the stables. And, by the way, there were a lot of points about the overlapping agencies and about uh, culture of certain uh, individuals who come from a corruption culture nationally themselves and didn't think there was anything wrong with transferring that into the UN, like the two Russian bureaucrats who, having been in the KGB for 25 years, when put in charge of the Food for Oil program, thought there was nothing wrong about getting kickbacks. So there's quite a bit to be said for improving the efficiency and shaking up the bureaucracy of the UN. But the UN at Helms envisaged would have been a much smaller UN with less capacity to deal with the transnational forces. Very reduced, more to technical agencies, and that's it. The second uh, version of UN reform is, is at the very far end of the spectrum. It's not the reductionist one, it's the big charter change one. It's the one I would encounter if I would go to Brazil or to India. Uh, Two countries along with Germany and Japan who are very much concerned to get a permanent veto seat on the Security Council, arguing that the five countries which have a veto power now, the five victor powers of 1945, the U.S., the USSR, slash Russia... Britain, France, and China, are perpetuating a 60-odd-year-old anachronism. And it ought to recognize the changes in world affairs that certain countries like India were not even countries in 1945. They were part of a Raj. And that therefore had to be drastic changes, including alterations in the charter to allow such candidates uh, full Permanent veto membership of the Security Council. So if I would go to Delhi and talk about improving peacekeeping procedures or improving financial arrangements or improving management skills, they would just say, Professor Kennedy, just go away. We're not interested in that. UN reform for us means changing the Security Council. For reasons I'll either going too late in the lecture or may take a question in the question-and-answer period, um, that's pretty difficult. So the Jesse Helms reductionist is not terribly helpful to World Organization if it's going to meet big challenges, and the changing the charter is extraordinarily difficult. It's much easier to amend the U.S. Constitution than to change the U.N. Charter. So uh, the, the people I was interested in, and I think my book on the Parliament of Man reflects it, were those who were saying, well, it's pretty hard to do charter amendment, but we need a more effective and respected UN organization than we have at the moment. So we should be working on a whole set of practical measures in regard to peacekeeping, in regard to disaster relief, in regard to pre-positioning of troops, medical supplies, in the gathering of data so that um, we actually know before a crisis breaks out and a state like the Côte d'Ivoire collapses, that there's a big problem in the Côte d'Ivoire. We should indeed deal with these questions of overlap and overlapping agencies, whether it's between the financial agencies like the World Bank vis-à-vis the United Nations Development Programme, whether it's the seven food distribution programmes in Tajikistan, all with different equipment, whether it's the six different agencies and commissions on the status of young women and girls in the developing world, we should be pushing ahead with an array of practical measures to enhance the capacities of the World Organization and its many agencies so that it gains more respect for its effectiveness, for its utility. And if it gains more respect for its effectiveness and utility, then can we talk legitimately about looking again at the Constitution and the membership? The third thing I learned, ladies and gentlemen, was... uh, This sentence will sound strange, but I will quickly explain it, I trust that there was not one but many UNs. That is to say that of of the various people I talked to and talked with, each of them was focused in their way on some part of the panoply of activities of a world body. If I went to Washington to talk with women's rights movements, they were indeed focusing upon population and women's health and young girls' education issues. In the developing world. If I talk to international human rights people like the Human Rights Watch or the people at the High Commission for Human Rights uh, in Geneva, they were focusing upon the human rights agenda. If I talk to people on the Congress, they were talking about making sure there weren't any UN taxes or that United States soldiers would never wear a blue helmet again after Mogadishu. It was peacekeeping or it was that bloody person, Chirac, who's daring to veto things. Uh, if I talked to a finance minister from Nicaragua or West Africa, his UN was the fact that he was getting contradictory advice from different financial and development agencies. The World Bank would come in to visit Sierra Leone and say, uh, you know, you have a budget balance deficit. You, you have a budget deficit. I mean, think of that, ladies and gentlemen, having a federal government deficit. Truly outrageous. <laughs> so you've got to do something about it. So you need to cut government spending to balance your budget, and then you'll be attracted, attractive to emerging market capital flows. And then 10 days later, the UNDP folks and the UNICEF folks would come in and say, we've been looking at your society and your country, and we think that your infant mortality rates are still far too high. The access of women to education is too low. You need fresh water supplies. You need more electricity and better roads. So we think you should be investing highly in the social fabric of your country. And the finance minister would say, Professor Kennedy, one part of the u n is telling us to cut spending, and the other part is telling us to increase spending now, which is the voice of the u n um, the re, The fact is that everybody had their agenda, whether it was a negative or positive agenda it, it ranged across the spectrum, which is why, if ever you glance at the uh, table of contents at uh, the uh, book which, after this lecture, the, this organization hopes to sell many copies of, um, you will see, I'm not sure if I can capture it right here, but the structure was like this. a Part one, a long chapter on the origins of ideas of international organization, on the attempts to set up the League of Nations, on the sorry record of the League of Nations in the interwar years. And then the lessons drawn by people like Gladwin Jebb and others and Keynes and Harry Dexter White about setting up new international organizations like the IMF and a new security organization like the UN. When So this um, chapter finishes indeed with uh, Gladwin leaving San Francisco and flying back wondering if they just have not aimed too high for our wicked world. The next part, part two, is the substantive part. It's six parallel chapters, six parallel stories, which run from 1945 to the end of the century. Because trying to divide it chronologically, saying, well, in the late 50s, this was happening in the peacekeeping realm, but that was happening in the development realm, and that was happening in the human rights realm, uh, would be all over the place. But, so it's divided into the six tales, the one on the Security Council, the separate one on peacekeeping and war making, the one on the economic agendas, especially the North South agendas and disputes, the one we call the softer face, that means environmental issues, children's health issues, women's issues, um, the separate and important chapter on advancing international human rights, and then a final chapter here, a bit less co- you know, a bit less coherent, but it is on the emergence of international civic society, the NGOs, the churches, the liberal foundations, the scientific organizations, the media like the BBC World Service and the CNN, which keep bringing to our attention the fact that we are in a inter-tangled, uh intertangled world that lots of important things are happening out of there. So different UNs, I'm going to come back onto that in a few minutes' time, just to say that the final part is, what have we learned from it? Where did it do pretty good and where we should keep supporting it or enhancing it? Where did it not do so good? What are the lessons we've learned from a mixture of peacekeeping operations in the late 90s? Because alongside the peacekeeping failures of the three that I mentioned, There's now been a significant number of peacekeeping and peace enforcement missions in East Timor, in Cambodia, in the elections just a short while ago, in the Congo, in the Central American Peace Accords, in Sierra Leone, and elsewhere. Why do these peacekeeping operations seem to work and these ones not? What are the lessons drawn? Why does this sort of... Development aid by the World Bank and UNDP seem to work well, and why did these projects not work well? This is what I meant by the practical middle way forward. Um, Let's go on then. So three lessons. Very few people are neutral. Um, UN reform means different things to different people and that there are various elements of the United Nations organization. If you go to the UN handbook, which thank heavens the New Zealand government produces every year for free, which lists all of the organizations under the UN umbrella, what they do, what the membership is, what the history is, briefly, you will see what I mean. I'm not going to talk very much about the technical agencies, but I would urge you to bear in mind that there's a lot of bodies which are part of a UN family or are in relationship to the UN family. I just put a brief list up here. This is a selection. There must be about ten times as many as that. Many of these, as you can observe, ladies and gentlemen, will not have you or even your congressman getting hot under the collar at night. I guess uh, you might think I'm a bit of a Luddite here, but I guess the non-existence of the International Union for the Protection of New Varieties of Plants, the loss of that body, unless I was on it and was being salaried by it, um, would not cause me grief. The World Tourism Organization, well actually I use Yale Travel and American Express, so I'm I'm pretty happy with that. But you see intermingled with these organizations, and these are a cluster of organizations. Most of them are what we call intergovernmental organizations, the International Labor Organization, founded well before the UN itself. Others are technical agencies. Um, All these are part of a family. We focus upon the dramatic CNN presentations of you know, hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing out of Mogadishu or angry debates on the Security Council. But there's a lot more to the story. That's why it actually took me quite a while to discover that there was a lot more to try and figure out what they did and, and to try and see where one could place them. Occasionally, uh, just, you know, because I I need to do... I'd rather do purgatory on earth than spend a lot of time in purgatory after my death. I, uh, instead of just talking to liberal politically correct audiences, I go up to arch-conservative country clubs, in New Cane and Connecticut, and talk about the need for improving uh, the United Nations. And... Some boy will get up on this Sunday lunchtime and say, "We really don 't need all of this, Professor Kennedy. What a fool you are. We just get rid of them we don 't need them. We just sweep them out. We stand on our own we, they 're just nuisance they get in the way let 's hear it I say you mean you want to get rid of the whole thing yeah let 's get rid of the whole thing for heaven 's sake and I say, Wow, um, you aren 't planning to fly anywhere soon, are you?" What's that got to do with it? Well, all flight arrangements internationally across the globe coming in and out of our airports are negotiated through the International Air Transport Agency. You don't happen to have any property on the sea, do you? Uh, because the laws of the sea, especially in concern to piracy, inspection, everything else, are run by the International Maritime Organization. And I suppose you don't have any... Uh, stock in IBM? Of course I do. I've got lots of stock in IBM. Well, then I want to tell you that the chairman and board members of IBM are very, very interested in the efficient operation of the World Intellectual Property Organization and the World Trade Organization without which our intellectual property would not be protected. Uh, and that uh, those who are worried about either sweat labor in the developing world or uh, U.S. blue-collar workers worried about labor standards uh, are actually some of the best supporters of the International Labor Organization, which was set up in 1928 specifically to ensure fairness of standards and treatment of workers across the world. But no, they... They forget about that. So what they're really obsessed about is the Security Council and Peacekeeping and, you know, U.S. dollars. And they cannot see further than that. You'll notice that some of these organizations I've listed, I've been rather cunning, and I've put more political ones in between the protection of new varieties of plants ones, um, including uh, in, uh, the International Monetary Fund itself, a big Bretton Woods institution, But some of these are technical at a certain stage, and then they become political. And you have to get to learn that as well. We know a lot more about this agency now, don't we, since Mr. Hans Blix came on the scene and was denounced by certain people in this country for not being able to find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq because there weren't any in Iraq. But he should have found some. Uh, International Atomic Energy Agency is an intergovernmental technical organization who have a lot of trained staff, trained in geology and in physics, in chemistry in photo photoreconnaissance, in uh, uh, chemical compound testing and the rest. It is they who are now carrying out or attempting to carry out the inspections, if we get in, to uh, North Korea or to Iran in regard to whether those countries, those rogue states, are complying with the uh, non-proliferation treaty clauses. It was the International Atomic Energy Agency which went into Libya when Colonel Gaddafi made his astonishing turnaround and said, we're giving up nuclear weapons. How do we know you're giving up nuclear weapons? Because we're going to put in hundreds of technical trained agency staff the head of the agency on receiving his reports makes a report with recommendations to the Security Council itself. So that's what I mean by saying it might be a technical agency, but some of its recommendations then move from the technical level to the hard bargaining of the Security Council level. But as I say, most people pay no attention to the plethora of agencies that exist across the globe under the U.N. umbrella and without which we would find life on this planet very hard to deal with. Now, we are focused much, much more on the sexy things, the dramatic things, the, um, the tragic things. That's what the media likes and that's what we get because we get the media we want So a few uh, illustrations here of what I mean about the things which the UN does, which at least a large number of us know. Um, And in the first few slides, I'm going to show things about how the UN has been trying since the early 90s to grope with the issue of collapsed states, of failed societies, of countries torn into civil war, of massive disasters of uh, massive famines, of migrations, and hundreds of thousands crossing borders, because they do get the news. I should say before I go into this that there is nothing in this UN charter about collapsed states or failed societies. The assumption of Gladwin Jeb and others was that a state collapsed when somebody like Adolf Hitler's Germany marched into Belgium. So the provisions of the Charter to deal with future acts of aggression by one nation-state against another nation-state, the idea that a nation-state itself, a signatory to the Charter, would just implode and need help, was not treated or discussed in the Charter, so that the uh, officials, the advisors, the secretaries-general, one after the other, have had to grapple with pressing political, social, environmental refugee problems without guidance from the Charter. But they have been grappling with it, and the story is actually not too bad. Um, So let's just look at the way in which collapsed societies get dealt with or have been dealt with in many cases. If, uh, of course, a member of the Security Council, Permanent Five, says, I don't want you doing anything there, nothing can be done because of the veto. (coughs) Peacekeeping. Uh, This is the traditional part of chapter seven uh, of the charter, which is about uh, ways of dealing with conflict. Chapter six is about diplomatic and political solutions to crisis and conflict situations. Chapter seven is where the Security Council is empowered by the Charter to ratchet up if somebody is disobeying a Security Council resolution. Ratchet up to economic sanctions, ratcheting it up to peacekeeping, and then even more heavy-duty peace enforcement. Peacekeeping was during the Cold War when East and West were variously threatening to veto things. Peacekeeping became the standard. Uh, the Blue Helmets, which were invented as a Blue Helmet in 1956 after the Suez Crisis, the Blue Helmets were usually lightly armed UN forces, that is, contingents from some of the governments, never contingents from the P5. That was an unwritten rule. Therefore, the UN peacekeepers in the Gaza Strip, in the tripwire line across the island of Cyprus, and many other places, tended to come from countries like uh, Poland, Sweden, Ireland, uh, Bolivia. And they would be there, and some of them are been there, like in the case of the contingent in Cyprus, it's been there since 1974. The observation, UN observation forces on the Golan Heights, UN observation forces in Kashmir. They are bound by the mandate to absolutely strict neutrality and impartiality. They are lightly equipped. They hardly have a chance of defending themselves. Their being there depends upon both sides who had been warring, agreeing not to pick up arms, and in particular not to do anything against these international neutral tripwire units. But what happens if one side disagrees with that? What happens if there's just warlords around? What happens if somebody tries to kidnap UN-lightly-armed peacekeepers? Then the Security Council can meet again and decide it's not going to take this. And it can therefore authorize a peace enforcement mission, which has got altogether more power and virtually authorizes by all means possible so uh, while these lightly armed observation units are there in, in that particular um, PowerPoint illustration, the next one shows pretty heavy-duty guys going through Kosovo in a peace enforcement mission in the mid to late 90s. The Security Council can, if it feels that the Mandate requires even bigger forces. It can use part of a, part of a charter to ask a regional organization like the Organization of African Union or NATO if it will take over the task. And with the authorization of a Security Council, we have, as you know, the NATO peace enforcers in the Balkans and now in Afghanistan. That's attempts to create the stability necessary for the initial stages of uh, the recovery of collapsed societies. We don't have that in Iraq, which is why none of the UN civilian agencies, the World Bank or anybody else like that, will go into Iraq until there is assurance of security for their unarmed civilian personnel. And frankly, if you talk to anybody from the Marine Corps, the Army, they would say, for God's sake, keep these out until we have security. Because you just put it, in a nice, friendly team from the United Nations Development Program, send them into Tikrit, and they get captured as prisoners. We have a hell of a job on our hands, which complicates the reaching of security. But when you've got that stabilization, you can then move on to use Other instruments, other agencies of the UN family, immediate relief. Usually the war-torn societies lack access to decent water, to uh, food supplies, to medical aid, to inoculation. And that's where a variety of these civilian agencies come into play. You'll see this is uh, the Lord's um, favorite UN agency, uh, UNICEF set up as an emergency relief body for children in Europe immediately after the Second World War, where so many millions of them had lost their parents, were wandering around, destitute. It has the E in its acronym as emergency. When it became clear that after what happened to the Palestinians in 1947, after Kashmir, that the plight of children worldwide was not going away, they decided to keep the name and to keep the word E in as a reminder that we thought we could deal with these problems in a couple of years. And if anything, the problems afflicting the children of this globe are larger than ever now. But there is a swing over also once you begin to get the immediate relief done and the rebuilding of shattered houses, you then begin to move to the longer-term rebuilding of the society. This is where countries like the World Bank come in, but it's also where uh, liberal uh, foundations, uh, Gates, Ford Foundation, Rockefeller, Carnegie, where they come in. This is where uh, single national uh, relief organizations come in, Scandinavian relief organizations, the Quaker Relief Services, uh, the, probably the biggest one of the, all the Catholic Relief Services, and they are concentrating on the strengthening of the society. And you can see that the, also with UNESCO, a body particularly interested in international education, they are going to try to deal with the problem of the lack of access to education, especially for young people, especially, especially for young women and girls in the third world. And so there's a very, very big push on this. You'll notice that the guy who's introducing this is, um, is native speaker and native resident who has been trained by the UN agencies. The time is long gone when six foot three tall, blonde, Swedish males could instruct Ugandan women on uh, birth control. Uh, you just really need to take all the resources, including the indigenous personnel, and utilize them. The more you can do that, the better the chance you have. What happens when you stabilize and they're building? You may, and this has been an interesting phenomenon just over the past 13 years, the UN has now got itself very heavily into election monitoring and election counting. It first started off with the uh, International Observer Group and a whole number of professionally trained balloters and ballot administrators going to South Africa uh, after the end of apartheid to supervise the holding of the first parliamentary democratic elections for all South Africans. And this gave them enormous potential It tends to work. People don't believe it if your government is holding the elections. But if the elections are held under international supervision and counting, then there's a chance that even the side which loses will agree to that, reluctantly grumbling perhaps. There are certain people in Whitehall who talk an awful lot about spreading democracy across the globe, Actually, the folks who've done more to spread democracy and democratic practice across the globe are the UN election monitors. We probably didn't notice in the run-up to Christmas that the Congo had its first democratic elections of all time, which went rather successfully. It's just as large as all of Western Europe put together. So there's a lot of stuff going on which isn't part of the bleak record of memories of Mogadishu or Kosovo, but it's been a hard and painful learning process. At the end, you may say, it's possible. The, the country's economy may get a good housekeeping certificate from the World Bank or the IMF, uh, the parliamentary system installed looks fairly stable, although the biggest litmus test of all is whether the second general election will be as democratic as the initial one. Um, The stability is back. The youth gangs have gone. You've trained a native police force. You've trained a native judiciary. And perhaps you can move on out. These are Nigerian troops leaving Sierra Leone after the years of the civil conflict there. And then the British-led peacekeeping mission to drive the machete-wielding gangs away. Uh, But I don't want to end this set of remarks uh, Professor Herman and ladies and gentlemen, just with the kind of glow of achievement and marking it up as successes, there are still very fragile parts of the globe. There are still countries where pe- even peacekeepers are not allowed in. There are dreadful things going on in Darfur province, which you know, and we cannot do anything about it because of the Chinese mutterings about a veto. Um, And there are some economic projects which slide backwards. There are some advances to parliamentary democracy which slide backwards because the the party put into power just can't believe, now it's in power, that it can be voted out and then tries to put pressure upon the electoral process for the second, like four years later, election election. So this is a checklist, this is a list of, uh, this is a record of um, mixed success, some better in some areas than others, despite all you think about the atrocities today, actually the 60-year story of the evolution of international human rights since the the, uh, Charter's preamble and since the 1948 Universal Declaration on Human Rights, it would astound any 19th-century politician. But it is a mixed bag, and there still hangs over it not only number of queries about the role of the World Bank and IMF and other things like that, whether we can get our act together on global warming, but for the nations, there still hangs over it this issue of whether the Constitution and whether the power distribution, especially on the Security Council, is not flawed so much that the UN loses credibility, loses authority, It's hard to say. What I am saying, and I hope I've tried to make the point, is uh, the director here sitting next to me just before said, Mission Impossible, what what does that mean? Are you going to say that it's impossible to reform the United Nations because I'd better get ready with my introductory remarks? And I said, no, I'm not. I am going to say it is not impossible to reform and improve the United Nations, so long as you understand what it is you want to reform and improve. So long as you understand the different language about what UN reform means. So long as you practice the art of the possible. And so long that you realise, so long as you realise that uh, advancing the future and the capacities of the United Nations is not unlike Lenin's famous advice to his Bolshevik cadres, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, There will be no brilliant breakthroughs in this story, but if we can move ahead with the efficiency measures and identifying the weaknesses, identifying where we can go better, uh, we will do better for the World Organization and for the people within it. We have only got one World Organization, ladies and gentlemen. If the UN Organization did not exist right now, it would be totally impossible for 192 sovereign squabbling nations to create it in any form other than just agreeing on the technical agencies. So if this is the only world organization we have got, and if you agree with me that the world of the 21st century is likely to be a turbulent and a challenging one, then I think you might also agree that we should uh, try to do our best to improve this organization so it can help us for years to come. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Professor, Professor Kennedy will take questions for 15 minutes or so. Until quarter past again. Yeah. Quarter past, that would be good. There's no mics speak here. Speak up loud, okay. and we'll have Professor Kennedy sort of repeat the synopsis the Yeah, question. we
1: don't have a, a traveling mic, ladies and gentlemen. So please speak up loud. I'll try to repeat it. Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, we'll Could you? Uh, all right, the question was, why is it so difficult to change the UN Charter, to amend any part of it? After all, it could be about the General Assembly, could be about the Trusteeship Council, but coming to this issue of amending the membership of the Security Council or the veto or whatever that I touched upon early in my lecture, there are two big hurdles which any proposed amendment to the Charter of the United Nations has to get over. Uh, The first is that a change in the Charter requires the approval of two thirds of the parliaments of the 192 member states. Not the governments, the parliaments. General Musharraf may agree to a change in the UN Charter, but if the Pakistan Parliament votes it down, that's a vote against that amendment. So given the fact that people who propose changes are usually proposing constitutional changes to benefit their country, and many of their neighbors don't like it, it really is terribly hard to get two-thirds of the parliaments agreeing to a change in the Charter. The last time it happened was in... 1964, when because of the significant increase of new ex-colonial members, uh, the original six two-year rotating members of the Security Council went up to ten, and that's where it has stayed to today. Five permanent veto members, ten two-year rotating members. Um, So if we haven't changed it since 1964, you can probably guess that that litmus test of the two-thirds majority of the parliaments is a tough one. The second uh, hurdle you have to get over is a bit more subtle. It has to be... Any proposed change in the Charter has to be um, with the acquiescence of the five permanent members of the Security Council. In the charter itself, this little booklet which I showed to you, um, the word veto, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't appear. I, uh, when I'm teaching international organizations to my students at Yale, and I say, well, next week we're going to talk about the veto, so you'd better go off and read the charter and be prepared to discuss the veto and its origins, etc. And then my Yaleys come back and say, Professor Kennedy, you know, we spent all weekend going through this, document. We can't find it. We did spell check, word this, that, that, and the other. We can't find it. Where is it? It's, uh, and I suspect Gladwin is responsible here. Uh, in cha- the, the three chapters on the Security Council um, are Chapter 5 on organization procedures, Chapter 6 on the peaceful settlement of disputes, and Chapter 7 on the more forcible settlement of disputes. Everybody runs to Chapter 6 and Chapter 7. Very few people look at the procedures. So, if you actually want to control any organization you're going to be in, whether it's a university senate or a company or God knows what, the Holy Roman Empire, make sure, <laughs> make sure you know the procedural methods. There is a small clause in chapter five which said, um, it, it concerns voting by the membership of the Security Council. And it just says, very neutral, I mean, it's Gladwin is really a stealth fighter in some of the words he uses. It says, a voting on procedural matters uh, will require a simple majority of members of the council. Voting on all other and especially substantive matters will require two-thirds of the whole number, 15 or then 11, with the concurrence of the five permanent members of the Security Council, and they actually spell out the names of those five in case you've forgotten them. And it's this with the concurrence or with the acquiescence which hides the veto power. At San Francisco, where this was debated quite earnestly, there were a number of medium-range countries who were not going to be on high table who really didn't like this veto stuff at all. And uh, Canada, Australia, Brazil, Mexico. The Mexican ambassador goes up to Vyshinsky in San Francisco and says, But, Mr. Ambassador Vyshinsky, and I should tell you that a procedural issue is we'll meet every Tuesday at nine o'clock in the morning. That's just a procedure, right? Totally non political. Mr. Ambassador Vyshinsky, but how do we tell? when it's just a procedural matter and when it's a substantive matter. And Vyshynski looked at this guy for about 25 minutes as if to, you know, thinking, you dummy. He says, he looked at him and he said, we will tell you. (laughs) We will tell you. If we declare that this issue, like who may be being proposed for next Secretary General, is substantive to us, it ipso facto becomes... Substantive. So that's a, it's kind of lengthy to explain, but you see it's got to go over both hurdles, which is why it's so really difficult. Take another couple of questions. Yes, please, miss. What do you think is the
0: probability of the Security Council ever being reformed, and under what circumstances do you think
1: that would occur? What do you think is the probability of the Security Council ever being reformed, which I take to be changed, um, And what what form would that take and how could it happen? We spent an awful lot of time on our commission listening to people with all sorts of ideas about reforming the Security Council, voting balances, regional membership, representation. Um, There is a kind of spectrum, so let me briefly sketch it out because I know time is is running ahead. There is an idea uh, put forward by some independent-minded uh Developing world countries like Singapore saying, "Get rid of a veto." You know, we don't get get rid of it. Why should there be five countries up on high table where while we are all down on low table? Now you know the reason why that will never happen because all of the five will veto it. That's <laughs> no, that's the catch twenty two of Security Council reform. But you then say, if you can't get rid of the veto, um, well, at least have a membership of the permanent. Council, which reflects the altered global balances of the 21st century. Uh, Think about it for a minute, those of you who are doing some diplomatic history, etc. At the end of great wars, like at the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, at the end of the Napoleonic War in 1814-15, at the end of the First World War in 1919, at the end of great coalition wars... Uh, The the great powers, the victors, tend to meet for the peace, to change the boundaries around and to set up some organization. Uh, But by the time the next great war comes and the next big concert of Vienna or Versailles comes along, some of those great powers have slipped away into second-class status and other ones have risen. And they become the ones who deal with the peace. What is different from all of those post-war settlements we know of in the age of the nation state since 1500 is that in 1945 this was the only time which encrusted five victor powers with permanent constitutional voting privileges. So that even if as say the relative power of France and Britain slips away over 60 years, they 're still named in the charter, so trying to get rid you know I, I hear people saying let 's throw France out of the security council <laughs> Well, great idea, boy, except it, it can 't work. Um, so you then say, "Well, can we put some of these countries, like India or Brazil, onto the security Council We, try, we proposed that in our report, we were fairly bold about. Uh, making it up from five to ten permanent members. with Japan, the second largest budgetary contributor, J- Germany, the third largest, a large nation who shall be unnamed in South America, beginning with BR, and a large nation in South India, not named, beginning with I, and a large nation in Sub-Saharan Africa, not named, beginning with USA, Union of South Africa. Um every one of the proposed uh, additional members, the contender nations, which their rivals called pretender nations, every one of them had foes. In Latin America, Mexico, Venezuela, Argentina, Chile, utterly resent the notion that Brazil could be a sort of regional spokesperson, vote person for Latin America. In uh, the case of India, Pakistan mobilizes all the Muslim states to vote against. In the case of Japan, China said bluntly last year it would veto. China rarely says bluntly it will veto. It usually hints that it's unhappy, and then the other people change it. This time he was going to veto, and what's more, the Chinese threat was warmly applauded by virtually all of Japan's neighbors. (laughs) Philippines, Singapore, Malaya, South Korea. So you see what happens even when when those four got together, when the permanent reps of uh, Germany, Japan, Brazil, and India got together to push ahead in combination... All it meant was they added to the combination of countries which were going to vote against. It was clear you'd get no two-thirds majority of the parliaments. So you're not going to get much work done there. My own suggestion, and it's a simple one, but there's a reason for it, is you think of two amendments. They would be amendments, but I think they would get the votes and that the P5 would not vote against One is in a day and age of 192 member nations, we ought to think of increasing the number of rotating two-year members from the present 10 up to 18. That would give us five, P5, and 18. Nine voted in one year for two years, nine voted in the next year. So many more countries would get the experience of being on the Security Council. It might well mean that after a while, some of them uh, realized, as many small nations did during the Iraq political crisis, that it wasn't a good thing to be under Security Council because you were getting sat on and your arm twisted by all the big countries. But nonetheless, uh, there's room for that. The, the Board of Governors of the IMF is roughly about 23. The Board of Directors of the World Bank is usually about 23, and nobody says that's too big. The second sneaky little thing would be to get rid of the clause which says two years in and then you're automatically out. This is for, of course, the rotating members. Just dump that clause. Just cut it. Nothing might happen at first. But it might be possible if a country like the Union of South Africa had been a very good spokes country for the sub-Saharan African countries, if it had reached out to help the less advantaged sub-Saharan African countries like Mozambique, if it had played a role in creating peacekeepers, police, election monitors. It might well be that when South Africa came to the end of its two years, Uh, Its neighbors would say, well, you know, why don't you run again? Why don't you stay on for another two years? In any case, I guess my real answer is we have to use the wit of man and woman to find something which will be amended, even if my Indian friends will declare totally unnecessary. So we have a long way to go, but uh, that's the situation. Thank you very much for your questions, ladies and gentlemen.
0: thank Professor Kennedy, but he's done two services for us. He's given us a terrific lecture, one that I'm sure all of us have thoroughly learned from and enjoyed. And in the 90s for years, I used his preparing for the 21st century in my fall course on international politics, and now I know what to use next fall. So I've done my homework here today. Professor Kennedy's going to sign this book uh, that he's lectured on here this afternoon, Uh, out in a reception that's uh, you're all invited to uh, outside in the lobby as I understand is that right Kathy so once again professor Kennedy, thank you very much all right you yeah.